Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. It is Matt Harrison, Seton Tucker. Always grateful to have you with us for these episodes. And this is a little mini episode, but important because of all the things that are going on in the Alec Murdoch double murder trial. And uh, this week, Seton has been there. Hopefully you listened to our last episode where she kind of set up the scene. I'm hoping to be there next week as well. But this uh, recording is on Wednesday after the session. So Seton's first session is what we thought would happen. They narrowed whatever number of jurors, somewhere around 100, uh, down to the final uh, people that will be on the jury. Uh, give us that story. Yes. I actually, we were recording this morning, so I was not there for jury selection, but it happened much more quickly than I thought it would have. The jury is made up of 12 and there are six alternates. And on this jury, there are four white men, six white women, two black women, and the alternates include three white men, one black man, and two black women. And like you said, it did happen very quickly. So they did that. And you were were you able to get in there for the after lunch session with yes, the, uh, we, opening, uh, the opening statements? Yes, I uh, went down to the courthouse and I was able to get into the opening statements, which began shortly after 3 p.m. today. And I was speaking to my dad on the way home and he's saying this, he thinks, in his opinion, is the most important part of the entire trial. Wow, really? And it laying was, out I, the plan. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. Um, and so Creighton Waters goes first. And uh, we'll let's talk about some of the things that you took away and I took away from the state's uh, opening statement. Well, first we found out that Paul was the person that they're saying has been shot first. Um, mm-hmm. And that the damage was very catastrophic. Then he says that Maggie was the second person shot. So we didn't know who was who was shot first. And we also hear that what the prosecution is saying that there were not defense wounds. And I want to stop shot- for a second. I'm because I'm, I'm curious too. Aren't you curious as how they figured yeah. out who was shot first? Because we read the report. We saw the report. We had Dr. Dupree on our show reading the report about the crime scene. I, I don't, uh, there must be something more to why they decided Paul was first, right? Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it was unclear from everything we've seen to this point. So maybe there will be some more evidence that we see throughout this procedure that will make that right. more clear. Because I thought that was, that was uh, surprising that they, they laid that out. Um, what else was in the prosecution that you mentioned the no defense wounds? I wrote that down too, that Paula was first. Um, and then the, the, one of the things they, they talked about was the, the video statement of Alec at the scene, right? That was uh, a, a curveball that they're going to use. Right. And that actually is what we're going to be seeing. The prosecution was wanting to show this kind of clips of the video, but, the defense said, no, let's show the whole thing. And it's approximately, I think, 40-something minutes. And we're going to see the entire video first thing in the morning. Of the body cam. 
Yes. The way I'm saying, yeah, body cam is important to say. And, and so in that body cam, I'm guessing the way the state presented is, Alec will say, I wasn't down at the kennels at all. I wasn't there, uh, which has been the story all along about this nap. Remember, that's been the, the story presented the whole time. And now it looks as though he's, there's going to be some sort of proof that he was there. And it's probably that 844 video that we've heard mentioned that Paul was taking of uh, a friend's dog, which would show that he was at the dog kennels, which would then they're going to say, well, look, this guy's lying about everything. And uh, we'll get to what Harpulian responded with at that. But the fact that they're going to run this full body cam video and the point of it is going to seem to be to show Alec making lie after lie after lie. That's what I took from it. Do you, you take the same thing? I did. And and they kind of put a little bit of the timeline for this video because he, he Creighton Water says that the video from Paul's phone was taken at 844 PM at the kennel. And that three minutes later at 849, Paul's phone locks forever mm -hmm. and then 35 seconds later at 8 49 and 31 seconds maggie's phone locks forever right so there was no that's cell phone yeah no and that's that is the implication there is that's when it all goes down that now yes, that would be the implication yes and they because he talks about how you can see uh, the phones, you know, Paul walking toward the kennel and all this sort of thing as you follow the phone. I'll be interested, though, in the accuracy of that and the accuracy of the phone that Alec, the calls he was making on his way to his mom's because of how rural that is out there. And I don't know the tower situation and whatnot and how uh, much that's going to be fought. And I'm sure it's going to be fought expert versus expert kind of thing. Um, from your video camera, could you actually see Creighton Waters speaking from the front, from the angle on Court TV? Uh, it was more of a the, the side, back, slide, slash, back, I guess. Because he did pick up his cell phone several times, indicating, yes. you know, talking about this cell phone, you know, we live on this. This is, you know, indicating that the cell phone data is going to be very important to their case. Yeah, because he mentioned, like, oh, suddenly uh, Alec doesn't have his phone, that kind of thing. Uh, yes. And he talked about the... Uh, he went into the idea that it is be beyond a reasonable doubt, but uh, it's like normal common sense, he says. It's good old-fashioned common sense is, is the, the saying. If it makes sense, yeah, it might be slight doubt, but a reasonable person could conclude that Alec did it. He went through that. And then talk about the, uh, the guns that he talked about, the state and, and Creighton Waters. Well, they talk about these blackout rifles, and he says that there were two blackout rifles, and one went missing from Paul's truck, and then he bought another one, but only one rifle was recovered from the scene. Yeah, so there's a total of three, because he bought two, one for, he says for Alec and Buster, uh, I mean, not Alec Buster, for uh, Paul and Buster, and Paul loses one, so he finds a replacement, and out of the three, there's only one they recovered, right? Yes. And then Creighton Waters, at some point, talks about Paul and his buddy, and he said the buddy may be called as a witness. We're firing from one of the uh, blackout rifles, and that's where they found 
the casings in a flower bed and on the shooting range. And those were a match with the ones that were found from uh, near Maggie's body. However, they don't have the rifle that they were fired from. But he says those casings all match. And the science is going to say, he says, the science is going to say they're fired from the same gun, which was a gun that at one time Paul and his buddy were using to shoot. Yes. So what uh, else did you, did Waters wrap up with? Well, he, he starts talking about all this cell phone calls that Alec made on his way to go visit his mother and, uh, you know, all the different calls he made. And I think a lot of those people will be named on the witness list. But in his opening statement, he talks about credibility a lot. And also there's the inference that maybe he is possibly trying to establish an alibi. So your thoughts uh, in, in entirety of the presentation, then I'll tell you what I took away. Okay. I thought that we have not really seen this fire from Creighton Waters before. I did think that you know, he spoke well. He, he was very animated. However, I do think that the lack of physical evidence is maybe, maybe a problem. Yes, I think... It's going to be just based on what we know. Obviously, a bunch of things can come up. The, the science, what they call science, of it being the same rifle, the question will be how heavy will the jury weigh that? Do, will they say, okay, well, there's no way it could be any other gun but that one, and there's no way anybody could have had that gun but Alec. So what? they'd have to make those leaps. That's the only, and I can't believe all 12 would say that's enough. And they're also relying a lot on opinions of, you know, this body cam footage is that, you know, how Alec was behaving after that. And, you know, it's kind of subjective. I agree. And it becomes more clear, I think, when you hear Harpootlian's defense of Alec Murdoch. Let's get to that. Well, before we talk about Harpootlian's opening statement, Let's talk about the fact that Alec had many family members in attendance of this hearing. We saw Buster. We saw John Marvin. Randy was there. His sister Lynn was there, I believe. Uh, there, there are a few other people. I think Buster's girlfriend, and I didn't know all of the people, but they, they did have a whole row of people behind him supporting gotcha. him. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because up till now, we, I think the only one in the, in the courtroom was uh, – was, um, uh, his sister, right? Yesterday. First one we, yes. only one we saw. Okay. Now, back to Harpootlian and the defense and their opening statement. Well, he started off with telling the jurors that he it was an honor to represent Alec Murdoch, and he had him stand up and greet the jury. And I think that was a very strategic and good move on his part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He uh then uh, well, there's plenty. There's so much to go through with Harpootlian. Uh, go ahead. You can start. Where, well, where, where do you want to go? He basically his whole he starts talking about you know the state's case is based on theory and conjecture and not facts. And he says that he challenges anyone to or any evidence to be shown that he was nothing other than a loving father and husband. Yes, and, and well, and it's interesting that he brings that up because the state 
does not make that claim. That I mean, they don't say that they were having problems in the marriage. They've never mentioned it. So Dick is just throwing it in there to make sure people know that because I didn't hear Waters mention anything about a, 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 a problem in the marriage. So if it's not going to come up, he might as well get it up first and say, hey, they're great together. Well, and a couple of other things. He said that um, there was this other video, which was that we had talked about in our episode that we released earlier today about um, with Paul riding around Moselle and they were laughing and having a good time. Yucking it up, I think at some point he said. Uh, Yeah, I think he said something like yucking it up. And that's what we have been told, you know, so it appears that this would be true. So I think what Harpootland is saying is that it would be a big leap for them to have this video with them having a good time. And then an hour later, you know, his him shooting his son in the head and he described it as like a watermelon being hit with a hammer. Yeah, he really got into it to try to. And it's something that we've been saying for months now that prosecution is going to have to make people believe that he went from stealing millions to shooting his son point blank in the face and blowing his brains out. Well, and Harpootland is also disputing what the state is saying about these defensive wounds. Uh, the, The state said that there were no defensive wounds, but when Harpootland is looking at the manner in which Paul is shot, he said it looks to him as if he is potentially holding his arm up, which would indicate possibly Mm -hmm. a defensive wound. And he's also saying that Maggie looks like she is running away. So I think he's saying that this doesn't look like uh, it, it it looks like it was that there are possibly signs of defense. Uh, Do you want to move to the, my cell phone question with Maggie's cell phone? Um, Yeah. Okay. So our talks about how, Maggie's cell phone, which we've already known, was found, I don't know, a quarter mile from Moselle in this uh, little grassy area or whatever. And we know that John Marvin's the one that helped him with find my iPhone. He doesn't mention John Marvin in that. But he does mention, he points over to Alec and said, hey, you know who helped him unlock that phone? That guy right there, Alec Murdoch. Well, we had heard it was Buster that had given the code to be open. Didn't we not, or am I mistaken? Yeah, I think it was unclear when I spoke to John Marvin about that. He couldn't remember who gave the code. He couldn't remember if it was Alec or Buster. Um, but also, what is also a little bit unclear is what Harpootland is saying was Alec was at the house at the time the phone was disposed of. Or I, I was confused about that. So it seems like there's going to be something about the defense is going to say that there's no way that Alec could have been the person to dispose of the phone, which would indicate that either he didn't do it or he had help. Correct. And, and um, we know that, uh, and then it goes into what we had known that the car started at nine Oh six. We had known that and that he returned to 10 Oh one. We have known that. And there's going to be all those calls in between that we're going to uh, hear from the experts and the people they talked to in that time. But so he cuts the time frame down. He's saying, so uh, I guess it's 844 was that video, which was 55 seconds or something long. So it's like 845 or something. So he's saying, how could he 
have killed them all in that short of time, changed all his clothes and gone to his mom's. Right. That, that, and, and incidentally, um, did you notice Alec was crying uh, on occasion? No, he did seem genuinely upset when they were describing some of these injuries occur occurring to, you know, actually I didn't see that because I was behind him. So I really mm-hmm. couldn't see his reactions to that. But I spoke with my dad on the way home and he said, oh yeah, he did really genuinely seem upset about um, these deaths. Yeah, well, yeah, he was he was wiping at his eyes and things like that. Wasn't like he bawling or anything, but he definitely was crying. Um, so that time well, frame is going to be key. I think so because I have a quote from Harputlin. He said, "Where are the blood, bloody clothes?" Mm-hmm. He said that Elk's clothes were were confiscated or seized that evening, um, and that he offered to search the house. But yeah, I'm they not got a warrant, sure right? The house was searched. Well, because remember, we remember uh, that the family was allowed in there. So right. it's unclear if the house was searched. So right. That's that's but a big he, he question. He invited them to. Uh, and also, I found it uh, interesting that Harputlian said he was going to ask the judge to take them all to Moselle. Oh, yeah. yeah. A, a field trip. A field trip, yep. Yep, and I, I think that his line about he'd be covered in blood may not be true, right? From the experts saying that even there's a lot of blood, if you fire from front, the spatter's not as much. Right. So I, I think the science will debate that. I I want to see what the experts say in this because, I mean, my mind is it's not made up. I mean the. You know, he said basically his brain was blown out. If you look at the amount of blood that it would, so I'm I think we're going to hear a lot of expert testimony on this. Okay, where shall we go next? There's so many things. Uh, what would you like to bring up? Well, they they talked about you know this video that there he says there was no animosity in this video. We've heard reports yesterday that. It wasn't quite as the defense is saying. That's that 844 um, video, right? Yes. But they're also talking about that Paul is texting with a girl about going to the movies um, before. And it didn't seem like there was some sort of big family fight. Um, also, he brings up the possibility that there could be two shooters. Right. And uh, a couple of things I wanted to uh, point out was that. Uh, he gets into gunshot residue a little bit because he talks about um, Alec loading a shotgun wrong. He uses a 12-gauge buckshot and a 16-gauge in the shotgun, and it's wrong, and he's an experienced hunter. And this is to prove that he was so distraught and so confused that anything he says on that interview on the body cam, you can't, doesn't hold water because he doesn't know what he was doing. He doesn't know what he was saying. He's, he was loading a, a shotgun wrong. He's loaded right forever. Uh, he also mentioned uh, how Paul was irresponsible with guns. Did, did you catch that? I, I did pick up on that, that he would leave just guns sitting around in different places. And obviously he left one in his car that was stolen. Right, right. Um, he also, oh, I, I kept thinking that they would bring this up. And it didn't. It finally, it was brought up. He talked about why it took so long to charge him. He talked about how we have been saying, Carlton County said the next day, made the big statement that the public is in no danger. 
And Arpulian seizing on that to say, look, they decided that very first day it was Alec and they didn't look for anybody else. But then, yes, and I think that that does make sense. But then also in the same vein, if the house wasn't searched, if they were convinced that Alec was the one who had done it, why didn't they search his house? Great point. Great point. And he mentions no eyewitnesses. He claims no forensics. He talks about the 10-minute walk. It would be, or I think he, he's saying it's a longer walk than than uh, the state had said, because when he pulled in at 10.01 and then to get over and the kennels and whatnot. Um, let's see, what else? did? Oh, he kept going on about the, remember, he's presumed innocent. He's presumed innocent. He's presumed innocent. And he said, he, he said, we don't have to prove anything. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, He's basically hammering in no direct evidence. He says no forensic. So I think that he's just saying you have to prove your case and we don't think you can. I think it was kind of funny when he said, hey, if I say something that offends you, jurors, (laughs) you you hold it against me, not Alec. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What is he going to do? Well, I mean, I think he was playing up to the jury and, you know, he's going to have to go hard after these witnesses. So maybe that's what he's saying when he when he has a sled officer up there who, you know, is, is, is a law enforcement officer. People may hold them in high esteem and he's going to have to hammer hard at them. And I also think that he knows that it's possible that some of these jurors have a preconceived notion, not necessarily about Alec, but Dick Carpoolian. He's been around forever. He's was a leader of the democratic party. He's been a Senator forever. He's you know, put people in jail on the other side and he's gotten people off on the other side. So they may have an opinion about Dick and he's got to get them to like him as well. Sure. Well, I have to, before we conclude, I have to, I, I was talking to my dad about this. He's an attorney and I asked him for a quote. So I'm going to read my dad's quotes. Okay. And this is his opinion. He said, both did a good job with the opening. Uh, what, with that said, we did not hear potential evidence that conclusively shows he did it. Also, defense did a great job of having Alex stand up, and he did softly cry when the description of his son and wife's slaughter were given. Effective with a jury. Very tenuous case. Mm, your dad is a good Matt. <laughs> He's the other Matt. <laughs> the other Matt. <laughs> yes. Uh, Seton, great job down there. Super job. And uh, we will be doing these updates as uh, needed and when we can fit them in with all the other uh, things that are going on in our lives. Uh, yeah, as all, our right. full-time job. Oh, sorry. Good. Let's, sorry. No, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. Just, just go ahead and say it. I it in. Okay. Yes. These are not our full-time jobs, although this is my full-time job this week. Um, but we also, you know, give us, give us some time. We've had a lot of people asking us to get daily updates and get as much out. And it's just the two of us. And we also have other jobs. And we're going to work on the, uh, eyewitness list and, and break that down for you as soon as possible. So we're always grateful. And uh, it's Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com. And you can see me on Court TV just about every night on the Vinnie Peloton uh, Closing Argument Show. And uh, thanks, friend. We will talk soon. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, 
or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.